today we're going to talk about the 800-pound gorilla in the Indian, in Indian religions. Uh, it's an expression which refers to some very big, obvious thing that people kind of try not to notice. So, uh, as far as I can see, going through this, I'm out of breath because I lost track of the time as a sort of sprint over here today. <laughs> so, um, the 800-pound gorilla, so to speak, is the fact that in virtually every Indian religion we've dealt with and every subdivision of every religion, practically, almost, uh, there is an attachment to personal life. An attachment to personal life and to some form of uh, personal divinity, you could say. And no matter how much different traditions try to sort of wiggle out of it or escape it or avoid it or deny it, it always keeps coming back to that. It just won't go away. Which raises the question that if something over thousands of years in every conceivable intellectual, mystical, meditational, sociological attempt, after every possible attempt to avoid something, it's still there, you wonder, could it actually be real? So, um, anyways, I want to, uh, by way of reviewing uh, everything we've gone over, in class, obviously, not every detail, short time we have, but um, I want to do it somewhat thematically, sort of a briefly review uh, this long history and uh, touch upon the way that this one fact doesn't go away, that no matter how people try to deny or avoid it, it keeps coming back to something about being a person and having some kind of relationship with some greater person who somehow is the key to your salvation or enlightenment. So, and then I want to talk more about Osho Rajneesh, and, uh, because we have not begun to exhaust <coughs> the amazing facts about his career. Uh, so I wanted to, and it does illustrate actually, uh, as someone who denied God, very uh, aggressively denied God, actually ridiculed the idea of God, ridiculed the idea of moral principles, uh, which somehow exist objectively outside of oneself, and who really uh, went down in flames. Uh, so I want to talk about that because it illustrates, I think, some important points. And it's, uh, uh, anyway, so that will keep you in the room until the end, hopefully. The, uh, the hope of more of that um, tabloid stuff. So, the earliest, the earliest Indian history and the earliest Indian religion that we can, that we have, that's, that's available to us, it, of course, comes from the earliest Vedas, like the Rig Veda. And, uh, you have different hymns in the Rig Veda, which are sung or chanted to different gods. Scholars have pointed out it's not merely polytheism. It's something like, well, they have other fancy words like panentheism or something. Yeah, but it's somewhat, how should I put it, 
that it's, it's personal in the sense that the Rig Veda is basically simply hymns to personal gods, and the Ajra Veda describes sacrifices offered to these gods. But there's something impersonal about it in the sense that selfishness is always somewhat impersonal. Because, let's say, if you're very nice to someone, uh, very friendly, but your motive is to seduce that person, to sell something to that person, to get something from that person, then all the, hi, you know, all the friendliness and all the so-called personal touch is not really that personal at all, because it's not really for that person. It's really for, you want to get something yourself, and that's just the way to get it. And so any form of religion, and it's unfortunately it's kind of like most of religion as it manifests on planet Earth, has some kind of motive, like people want to get something. And this impersonal reality of selfishness, they're coming after us, I think. <laughs> We've obviously been stalked this entire semester now. Anyway, so, so the fact that selfishness <laughs> the fact that selfishness has an impersonal aspect is really not that personal even when you're offering personal things was brought out very explicitly by the Mimansa people they said like hey the gods are just paraphernalia like you know you got a you got a milk cup here you got a fire stick there you got a god up here it's just all paraphernalia and it's really just a mechanical process and uh, so the Mimamsa is really brought out vividly and uh, unashamedly the, uh, the, um, the fact that selfishness is impersonal. If someone's like being real nice to you, uh, as they have this funny way of, in Latin America, they say, Mostranda de Glado, showing the keyboard, which means like, a big smile. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh my God. So if someone, if someone is being real nice to you, but you know they're just trying to get something from you, it doesn't feel that personal, unless you're really desperate for attention. So, anyway, so then we get the Upanishads, and the Upanishads really go two ways. They go personally and impersonally. The Upanishads have personal teachings and impersonal teachings. And even in the Rig Veda, you have the 10th book, this hymn to the Purusha, the person. So in that sense, the Rig Veda concludes with, ends with this great hymn to the person. And even though, uh, as you must have read in the textbooks, <coughs> that um, the old Vedic gods and the old Vedic sacrifices uh, kind of had their day and other things started to replace them. But in a sense, what replaced the old Vedic way was already in the Vedas, and that is the person. Because the person was very early on identified with Vishnu. And, uh, and Vishnu Bhakti, or devotion to Vishnu or Krishna, became, in a sense, the largest single uh, thrust of, of this re-articulated Hinduism. So, the personal is the Upanishad, the very personal Upanishads, like, like the Shvetashvatar Upanishad, the white mule Upanishad. Bless you. So, but then there are impersonal aspects, and, and of course, the fact that the Upanishads have both personal and impersonal statements is brought out very clearly in the Vedanta tradition. 
because the Vedanta tradition is trying to explain the Upanishads. And some of the Vedantists jump on the impersonal statements, like Shankara, and some of the Vedantists, like Ramanuja or Madhu and others, uh, bring out the personal side. But, but even there, even Shankara, as I think one of our books said, really has been accused of being a Vaishnava. Because he wrote one beautiful poem called the uh, Gita Mahatmya, Glorification of the Gita, in which he speaks exactly like a Krishna Bhakta, a devotee of Krishna. Expresses his devotion to Krishna, glorifies Krishna, says things like, let there be one scripture for the world, Bhagavad Gita, let there be one God, Krishna, let there be one prayer, which is Harinam, the name of Krishna, the name of God. And so it's perfect bhakti, it's perfect Krishna bhakti, it's coming from Shankara. And Vedanta scholars it, uh, often say that Shankara's followers were more hardcore impersonal than he was. But anyway, so now take Buddhism. Buddhism started out as this no-frills uh, process. It had a very strong moral element, like don't kill animals and don't kill anybody and be nice to everybody. And uh, this psychology, uh, you're suffering, uh, you're suffering because you're selfish, uh, stop being selfish, you'll stop suffering, and here's a practical program to stop being selfish and stop suffering. So, as we know, as, as we discussed, uh, in the highly competitive and intellectually sophisticated religious environment of ancient India, uh, Buddhist followers gradually turned two things. Out. First of all, they turned this psychology into an ontology, so that it wasn't merely uh, a technique to sort of get past your suffering. It was actually a description of the universe. And there's a lot of evidence Buddha didn't intend it that way. So, but Buddhism, uh, there were some Buddhists like Nagarjuna and other people earlier who tried very hard to make this the no-person, anatma, the non-person, non-god movement, but it didn't work. Because as early as, uh, let's say, a few hundred years after Buddha, in Mathura, the place where Krishna was born, they were already starting to carve personal deities of Buddha. And of course, in Mathura, there was a lot of worship of Krishna going on. Krishna is brother Baladev. And so you find in Mathura, a very important city in ancient India, it's just south of Delhi, it's between Delhi and Agra, where the Taj Mahal is, uh, that the Buddhists, there was a very strong Buddhist presence there, they had dozens of monasteries, stupas, and things like that, they start making deities and worshipping Buddha. And because they're in the city of Krishna, there's so many Vaishnavas there, and the Vaishnavas acknowledge Buddha as an avatar of Vishnu, and some Buddhists start to get into the idea. Yeah, that's right. Buddha's an avatar of Vishnu. And so you can see how Buddhism starts to inexorably make its way back to Hinduism. So there's all kinds of worship of Buddha, there's worship of other Buddhist saints. Ultimately, the uh, what is pejoratively called Hinayana is overtaken by the Mahayana Buddhism. And their highest ideal is compassion, which is a very personal quality. So the highest ideal for Mahayana Buddhism is to be a compassionate person and to come back to this world, life after life, to help other suffering persons. And so even though... Ultimately, perhaps, there's some nirvana which was never actually defined. Uh, clearly, maybe someday we'll go to that impersonal nirvana, but at least for the next several 
billion years, will just keep coming back as persons and taking care of other persons and will worship the personal Buddha with, with a, actually an actual physical icon, a deity form. And uh, will make shrines and altars and will basically perform puja, exactly like Hindus. And we will care about our ancestors, even though they're not only persons, but we care about them. And we have to do special prayers and pujas for our ancestors. And it, it's just personal as any other religion can, can possibly be. It's all about being the right kind of person, avoiding bad personal karma, getting good personal karma by being a good person. And so the impersonalism is just, uh, basically, it's gone. So that's Buddhism. Then uh, the Jains, who don't accept a creator god, but they compensate for that. They have, um, the Jains, um, actually I went to a Jain website, which is done out of, uh, I think it's the University of Michigan, they have this, what they claim to be a comprehensive Jain website. And uh, they stress the importance of puja, to concentrate on one's soul through intense prayer. Like, to whom? Like, who are you praying to? And uh, they have this process called Samayik, a 48-minute ritual that asks for forgiveness for one's sins. Okay, there's no God. Actually, there's no God, but you pray and ask for your sins to be forgiven. So, and of course, there are the Jinas, or the Tirtankaras, the Ford makers. I don't mean the motor company, which is... But, Ford, it says like fording a river, like going across the crossing makers. So, um, they have the genas, they're supposed to be 24. The last one is the first one that's actually, so to speak, historical. Uh, Mahavir, who had a really great idea and apparently starved himself to death. Which uh, makes me wonder. Anyway, so, but still, they, they worship these genas, these conquerors, these chirtankaras. So, so that urge to worship, that urge to have a personal deity, to worship it, something that's divine, to pray, to be forgiven for sins. Uh, again, among the so-called intellectuals, they may get into that. But down on the ground, in the trenches of lived religion, something very different is going on. And so this attempt to make religion totally of the mind and not of the heart, just of the brain, no heart, it doesn't work. Because the attempt to conceive of the soul, and of course the Jains have their soul, as an absolutely intellectual being, simply something which you can talk about in philosophical categories, ignoring the heart, ignoring the fact that we actually have feelings, and our feelings are not always irrational or painful. So... Uh, every attempt in the history of Indian religion, and I would venture every attempt in the history of religion, to come up with a goal, a definition of the person, which is all brain and no heart, ultimately it fails. At least fails in terms of doesn't get a lot of votes and it gets put out of office. And even if that sort of all brain, no heart idea is preserved for, you know, for the sake of preserving it as some kind of you know, relic of the past, in terms of the way people actually practice religion and live religion and feel religion, that's not what they're doing. It's actually not what they're doing. Because what people go to again and again and again and again in India or every other country, I think you can investigate, is something which combines the brain and the heart. Because to say that 
our thinking, our conceptualizing, our categorizing is all we are. And all of our feelings, even our most noble feelings, our most joyful feelings, are simply an illusion. And ultimately we are just categories. We're, we're something conceptual and intellectual. It just doesn't, it's, there's something not real about it. And uh, it just never lasts. It always turns into something else which brings back the heart and tries to combine it with the brain. So that's, in a sense, the history of Indian religions. I mean, that's what keeps going on again and again. Uh, if you look at the Bhagavad Gita, which is an intensely personal work, and then, of course, the Shaiva side, especially the Shaiva Siddhanta, which was like a Shiva Bhakti movement, uh, the Nayanars, who are on the Shiva side, the Alvars, the Vaishnava side, this very intense devotional, loving poetry, and so on. Uh, Bhagavad Purana we talked about. Now, the, the Sikhs are interesting because the Sikhs, like um, the Sikhs, or Guru Nanak, is, uh, begins his mission, his preaching, at about the time that the Mughals are taking over in India. And so um, he wants to try to find peace. You know, blessed are the peacemakers. So he wants to find a way to make peace. And so in doing that, he eliminates some of the most, uh, to the Muslims, offensive aspects of Hinduism, namely all the visual stuff. The visible icons, the paintings, just everything visible, uh, you know, visual, I should say. Everything visual. And yet keeps a lot of the, sort of keeps a lot of the rest of Hinduism, just sort of like de-visualizes it. And it... And, you know, if he was hoping to kind of bring religions together, it didn't work because his, his followers ended up in open shooting war with the Mughals. And uh, so, so much for that ecumenical attempt. But what's interesting about the Sikhs is that they cannot stay away from a vis visible, touchable, tactile deity. They just make it a book. And it's, I mean, for those, if you really know Indian culture and Pooja and everything, it's actually remarkable to see them treating the book, which includes poems by non-Sikhs, like Kabir, for example, who had the uh, ingenious realization that God is not present anywhere except in his teachings. You know, we, we, we quoted that poem that uh, God is not in the temple, God is not in the mosque, God is not in the prayer, God is not here, God is not there. So, uh, that was a powerful realization. Anyway, so the Guru Granth Sahib includes all kinds of uh, poems from Kabir and other people, and there are even pictures of it. They, they treat it exactly like an icon of deity. They fan it with the chamra, the whisk, uh, yak tail fan, and they offer incense to it. They put it on a seat. They treat it like a deity, and it's a physical object. So you, they just can't keep away from it. And, of course, the Sikhs typically have these religious posters, paintings, uh, Guru Nanak. Uh, Neela, you've been in India. Do you want to give any observations? Um, I went to a Sikh temple in Yeah, because, because as we all know, books, 
books are prone to perspire and get hungry. So, yes. Do they just like all copies of that book, or just that one copy? Well, they don't have that many copies. Do they? I think there was something they don't print it, or is it? Or they print very few. So they just print enough to like sort of install it as a deity in various shrines and and gurdwaras, uh, temples. Nobody reads it then. They do read it. They do read it. But they, they, it's just like in, if you've ever been to a Jewish ceremony, like a, a traditional Jewish ceremony, where the most dramatic part of the service they take out the Torah and open it and they read it. So they didn't look exactly like that. But yeah, they, they do read it. But it's 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 fed. It's put to bed at night, and then they wake it up in the morning. So, again, uh, they they don't want a deity, but they end up with one, which is, I think, slightly less intuitive. So, but still, they treat the deity exactly like a person, slight, exactly as a person, with all kinds of personal worship. They, they can't stay away from it. And the Buddhists, I remember years ago when I was at Berkeley, I saw an exhibition of Buddhist icons from Japan. They, they build altars exactly like in India. They have beautiful little shrines, altars. They have the little Buddhist deities, you know, Buddha deities. And it's just, that's what people are doing. So, uh, any questions on all that or comments? Yes. Is that, No. Okay. So, um, if someone argues that, I, I put Bonnie and Clyde on the blackboard one time, uh, in the sense of like the dualism, dualism and monism, in the sense that the monists, for the monists, since everything is one, but there are obvious differences in this world, like things are different colors, and they're different peoples and different shapes. I mean, there's, just, there's nothing but variety in this world. Uh, so the monists basically have to just dump all that. They have to say that, you know, just all variety is an illusion. We just think we're different persons. You just think you're on a chair as opposed to the back of an elephant. And an elephant's trunk is not really not different from his ear. And, I mean, it, it, it sounds very absurd. But, some, but, but hardcore monism really does reject all the variety of the world as a delusion. And yet, the variety is what we constantly experience at every moment of our lives. And the dualists, although they accept the variety, the dualism is precisely between God and the world, creator and, and, and creature, or creator and creation. And therefore, uh, this world is uh, hopelessly profane. It's hopelessly mundane. It cannot be truly spiritualized. And therefore, it's offensive to portray God or anything divine in a visible form. Because there's no way, and never mind the burning bush from the Old Testament and other epiphanies, you know, it just... So anyway, therefore, any visible presentation of God or any divine thing is blasphemy. It's offensive. It's idol worship because there's no hope. There's no hope for matter. It can never be exalted. It can never be spiritualized. It can never become a worthy vehicle for God's manifestation. It's just basically trash. And that's why to... Um, although this is kind of... It's kind of inconsistent because then you have the resurrection doctrine 
this, this, is a, this is not a dogmatic critique, sort of philosophical musing about this, because the idea is that when, you, when you're saved, your material body, I guess at some ideal age, whatever you think your best age was, your material body is resurrected. So matter, it's offensive to think of God appearing somehow in this world, becoming visible through some aspect of this world, and yet your material body is somehow suitable to intimately associate with God. Because when you go back to heaven, it's your physical body that gets resurrected and presumably uh, beatified or blessed or somehow spiritualized. But So apparently it's just one-way traffic. Like your physical body can be spiritualized. I, anyway, I don't think it's absolutely consistent. And, I, and, and if you, in the, for example, within India, in the Islamic critique, in the Islamic critique of uh, Hindu the Hindu appropriation of this world, the physical world, religiously, uh, I think what we will not find is anything like a sophisticated or a mature or a serious ontological argument. It's sort of just taking it for granted, like, hey, everybody, this is a stinking material world. You know, how can you say that God appears in, in matter? That's blasphemous. There's not a systematic, mature, ontological argument as to why matter, even though created by God, cannot somehow function or be engaged in a spiritual way. And so it's the, uh, so basically to reject the idea that God can appear in an icon is to reject that uh, we talked about for the data meta. The difference and the non-difference. And so it's to say, like, like if here's God, and, and then, you know, God creates the world, that somehow in this act of creation, the cause is not really in the effect. That was a Satkaryavad. We uh, that was a whole Vedanta thing we did. The Satkaryavad, uh, Karya means the effect, the effect, and Sat means uh, truly existing. And and Bada is just ism, like truly existing effect ism. And so the idea is that when God creates the world, however he does that, or she does that, or they do that, when God creates the world. Uh, somehow, God being the cause is present in the effect. Because causes are present in effects. And therefore, it's in that sense that everything is Brahman. It's in that sense that, that, that everything is actually spiritual. Because the cause is present in all the effects. And everything that exists is an effect from the cause of all causes, God. Therefore, everything has the potential to act spiritually and to be used spiritually and everything can somehow function as a vehicle for a manifestation of God. Because after all, it's his thing. Or a thing. So, so again, this criticism, which is very prominent in Western culture, like they're against idol worship and people are offended and shocked and appalled and so on. I think it would be less so if they were a little more philosophical and actually thought about it. Because what we're really talking about is not some, uh, you know, scandalous offense to God, but actually serious philosophy about causality, the nature of causality, the nature of creation, and so on. So it's actually the fruit of serious, and I think, whether you agree with it or not, at least coherent philosophizing, as opposed to just sort of scandalous idolatry. And I don't think, yes? Um, yes. You were proposing that uh, Vedic philosophy um, says that God is within everything because the cause is present in the effect. 
but um, I'm just kind of going through it in my head, and it seems like even though the cause is present in the effect, that doesn't necessarily mean that that effect can reproduce the cause or, re or represent the cause in, in a way like... Yeah. It's just like, yeah, just... How, it's, how can it be retransformed back to becoming spiritual? Like, I was thinking of, if you get corn and then you make cornbread, you can't make corn again out of it. You can't turn the effect back into the cause. Yeah, yeah, so, so maybe that analogy doesn't... Okay, that's a good philosophical argument for which you, your grade will be lowered. So, <laughs> to say that to say that the cause is present in the effect is not to say the effect in every way is the cause. And so, let's take a deity. Let's say you have like a typical Hindu deity, a Shiva or or Krishna, the just typical Hindu deity. And let's say the marble or the bronze or the wood or whatever the deity was made of, those are typical elements, you know, carved out of wood or marble or cast in different metals, not actually not merely bronze, but cast in different metals. So let's say those materials, those actual materials, wood, metals, or marble or whatever, are an effect of God. And so the difference, the problem with corn and cornbread, the disanalogy, as we would say philosophically, the disanalogy is that corn generally is not highly conscious and, uh, and doesn't have the power to do all kinds of creative things. So therefore, we would say that um, if, if you look at cornbread and you can analyze how the nutritional value, because let's say it's like, you know, whole grain, natural, organic cornbread. And so, as opposed to what you buy, you know, say, at some stores where you really can't find any chemical trace of the original corn. So, but if, it, if it's sort of like real cornbread, if it's real cornbread, then you can find the corn in there. So in that sense, whatever powers the corn did have are still in the cornbread, if you made it right, if you didn't, you know, mess it all up in, in the manufacturing process. So therefore, if the corn's powers, which may be nutritional and color, you know, the, the fact that it's a certain color, if the corn's powers are in the cornbread, then it follows analogously that God's powers are in the deity. So just as corn and God has more than nutritional value. So that, then you make a list, like, what are God's powers, and then analogously those powers would be in the deity, just as the powers of corn are present in the cornbread. including the power of volition, which is lacking. I mean, most ears of corn don't make a lot of decisions. So, so now, I, I mean, perhaps we'll go on to... Uh, any questions on that? And then, so, so you have... And even the Sufis, speaking about the Muslims, uh, oh, the Bonnie and Clyde thing was, because they were kind of like attacking uh, people or you know, doing bad things, apparently. So... The monist and the dualist both attack the world and say not merely that it's temporary. The beta-beta philosophy, which is found not only in India, it's found around the world, actually. In all religions, you'll find people that came to this conclusion. It's sort of like this uh, philosophical theism, what you might call it. Uh, the world is not bad. It has its limitations. But the problem is just our, our attitude toward the world. In fact, 
The problem is that we don't see the world as divine. And if we did see the world as divine, we wouldn't try to exploit it. Like if you see, let's say, someone walking toward you and uh, you know their body is attractive to you, to, be, to give a sort of a crass example. You know, it's the right chemistry or whatever. You think like, wow, that, I can really relate to that kind of body. So, but what is that body ultimately? It's, it's, it's energy, it's matter. And so, and so if you see that energy, which now constitutes that attractive body, if you see that as an emanation from the absolute truth, as Brahman, you might be less inclined to exploit it and more inclined to honor it. So, and th- th- we'll bring this out if any of you actually... Uh, are so pious you actually come to the last class of the semester. Uh, we're going to speak about ecology and how you know how different philosophies play out in terms of attitudes toward nature. <coughs> I don't want to give away what you probably already know how to say anyway. But but if you see the world, if you see, I mean, I just wrote down a little list here of things like friendship or love. Beauty, compassion, music, dance, hope. These are all personal things. So if you see everything, including your own emotions, your own emotions and all physical things as somehow divine, your attitude toward everything is going to be to respect everything. To respect other people, to respect objects, to respect other living creatures, to respect your own body. Whereas if you see the world as somehow just a delusion, this way or that way, uh, then the attitude may not be as healthy. Speaking of unhealthy, uh, I wanted to go on to the next topic. The Sufis, by the way, were also very personal, very devotional, and they, they kept getting kind of infatuated with Hinduism, and then the, uh, the conservative Muslims kept sort of reining them in and threatening them and warning them. But they, they did really have a fascination, and, and they were influenced by, fascination with their influence by the Indian bhakti movements. In fact, uh, the reason why during the partition of India, the, uh, uh, the two places that were cut off from Hindu India were East Bengal, Bangladesh, and the, uh, the northern western Punjab, which became Pakistan, and uh, you know Baluchistan, all those areas, Sindh. The reason those areas were cut off is that's where they had the most Muslims. And according to scholars who are defending Islam, so not defending it, but just trying to give a balanced picture, the reason you had so many Muslims in those areas is not because of violent forced conversions, but because of the influence, of, or apart from violent forced conversions. One of the reasons was the influence of Sufi teachers. Sufi teachers. And the Sufis were kind of like the um, innovative, devotional, bhakti, very personal, ecstatic, mystic, saint type people. And uh, they employed all, you know, Bhajan, Kirtan, all kinds of Hindu uh, devotional techniques and concepts. And uh, they themselves became objects of worship. So again, it was very popular, despite sort of like this very Spartan, you know, five-point program to become Muslim. You profess that there's no God, there's no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. You say that thing. Uh, you pray, you go on Hajj, you go on pilgrimage, you give charity and fast on Ramadan. So you do the five-point program and you become Muslim. But, and, and 
those are all nice, but on the ground in India, what really converted, to the extent they were able to convert Muslims, uh, Hindus to Muslims, it was by the personal devotional approach. So again, the power of the personal over just the, uh, the impersonal. Uh, so, Osho, uh, Rajneesh. I want to mention him because uh, I think he sort of exemplifies some things which are worth talking about. We have a little more time. Uh, I actually watched a bunch of uh, Osho lectures, Rajneesh lectures on YouTube. Because uh, I want to be fair and, uh, well, I wasn't disappointed. So he, he was act, I mean, he was very scandalous and controversial during his time. He attracted a lot of people and outraged a lot of people. And he does speak very boldly, very openly, that it's ridiculous to think there's a god. It's sort of a stupid idea. And, um, and that it's also stupid to uh, accept any moral, external moral rules. Like basically, whatever, you know, morality has to come from within you. Like whatever you feel like, the morality has to come from you. No one should ever tell anyone else to, not to do or to do anything. Try raising your children like that and see what happens. So, but what actually happened? What was the result of that, you could say, libertine or uh, doctrine? And like Krishnamurti, you know, he also said that if anyone tries to give you a belief system, that person is your enemy. So I guess he was the enemy of his followers because he certainly gave a belief system. Because as soon as you say there shouldn't be belief systems, that's a belief system. If there's something extremely naive about saying, like, we shouldn't have any beliefs, no teachers, because as soon as you say that, you're contradicting yourself. And Krishna, I think, being much more realistic and intelligent, in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 17, says, Shadhanayo Yam Purusha. That everyone has faith in something. Everyone believes in something. It's just based on the quality of your existence, you believe in different things. There's no one that doesn't believe something. If you say, no, I don't believe anything, I'll just ask you, do you really believe that? Do you really believe you don't believe anything? Or if you say, I don't know if I believe, then I could say, do you really believe you're not sure? So everyone is believing things at every moment. So to say no beliefs, I think, is uh, literally, incredibly, unbelievably naive. To, to make statements like that. No beliefs. But he did say that. Anyone that gives you a belief system is your enemy, and since he gave one, well. So, here's some quotes. Some Western sannyasins, he gave people sannyas, but it was not to uh, give up anything or be celibate or chaste. It was just to celebrate life however you feel like it. So, some sannyasins, and apparently these were uh, females, were, and this is well known, were financing their extended stays in India through prostitution and drug running. Prostitution and drug running. And this, of course, is saintly life. A few of them later claimed that Osho was not directly involved, but discussed such plans and activities. They discussed their plans with him in Darshan. He gave his blessings. So you have these young women coming from the West. Young women coming from the West. And they want to stay in India with him, but they can't afford it. So they become prostitutes in India and sell drugs. And they tell him what they want to do, and he gives his blessings. 
So, uh, because after all, uh, morality is stupid. And obviously there are no long-term consequences of becoming a prostitute or selling drugs, right? Or taking drugs. I mean, it, it, there are no undesirable consequences as you get older and realize all the damage you caused yourself. So, uh, there was an increasing emphasis on his prediction that the conventional world would destroy itself by nuclear war or other disasters sometime in the 1990s. So this may all be an illusion that we're even here right now. Then uh, what happened is it became so scandalous in India, it became so scandalous in India that they basically were sort of hounded out of the country because although Rajneesh, being an Indian citizen, could stay there, but his followers weren't getting their visas renewed, they weren't getting land permits and so on. So they, and then an American lady who took the name uh, Sheila, the Indian word Sheila, uh, sort of became his right-hand person and convinced him to move to America where everybody could get visas, the Western people. They bought about 67,000 acres of land in Oregon, if you know, uh, sort of near the um, south of the Columbia River, a place called the Dallas, D-A-L-L-S-E-S, D-A-L-L-E-S, how do they pronounce it, the Dallas. Uh, and so what happened is that um, apparently... Uh, this Sheila sort of took over and convinced him to stop lecturing and even started wiretapping his place and sort of took over. And, and then Rajneesh called her and his, his right-hand person and her staff, he called them a gang of fascists. And they sort of took off to Europe with a whole bunch of money. And then Rajneesh accused them of committing a number of serious crimes including uh, the attempted murder of his personal physician. This is his right-hand person. The attempted murder of his personal physician, poisonings of public officials, wiretapping and bugging within the commune, within his own home, and a bioterror attack on the citizens of the Dallas, Oregon, using salmonella. These allegations were initially greeted with skepticism, subsequent investigation by U.S. authorities, confirmed the accusations, these things actually happened, and resulted in the conviction of Sheila and several of her lieutenants. The Salmonella attack was noted as the first confirmed instance of chemical or biological terrorism in the United States. So, this thing is not without distinctions. Sheila claimed in media interviews that Osho took 60 milligrams of Valium daily, and that he was addicted to nitrous oxide. The Oregon Commune collapsed in 1985. Shortly after, Osha was arrested, charged with immigration violations, deported from the U.S., and then he was, he was forced on this world tour because he couldn't get his followers into India. And he actually went to 21 countries, and you can actually read about this, that denied him entry. He would, like, land, and they would just, they wouldn't give him, let him in. His plane had to take off again. And sometimes he had to beg just to refuel. Sometimes he was denied permission to refuel, but they landed anyway. And he actually went to 21 different countries, all back and forth across the world, and no one would let him in because they were, well, controversial. And so 
Uh, well, the result of telling people you can do whatever you want, and you know, there's no morality, there's no, there are no objective moral principles external to yourself. God is a stupid idea, and what this leads to is uh, <coughs> attempted murder, prostitution, and the, the ironic thing is now in his death, he's become something of a hero to many people in India, and the Dalai Lama went to visit his community. So, anyway, it's interesting. It's uh, it's just. I think one more evidence that we live in a very remarkable world. Yes? If he was all about, you know, promoting uh, no morality and stuff, then why, was even, why did he even bother him that she took all his money and threw off the Yeah. Um, okay. Maybe she's still alive. I can ask her. Ask her at least. But... The idea was, in one lecture, which I just watched this morning, actually, he said that um, sex, sex and death, uh, people sort of don't want to talk about that. So uh, the way to sort of transcend your thing about sex, your attachment to sex, or transcend your fear of death, uh, well, at least the sex thing is, you should just really, you know, just totally do it, and then you'll, you know, you'll kind of transcend it which is not exactly what happened for a lot of the people. So, I don't think we have time to discuss this, but it gets into that topic which I was supposed to talk about last time, and that is, to what extent is it valid that if you have a material desire, you can, and, and let's say you accept the idea that you will be happier and wiser and just have a better life if you can transcend those material desires and somehow have more noble desires. Um... To what extent do you indulge those desires? To what extent do you just work through them? To what extent do you renounce them? There's an interesting uh, example given in the Bhagavad Purana. It's, the example is given of, of someone, a charioteer, someone who's, uh, you know, got the reins of the horses. And the idea, if you've ever worked with horses, if you, if you pull back too tightly on the horses, if you try to control them too much, you know, they'll bolt, you lose, con- you know, they'll, you lose control. On the other hand, you can't give them too much rein. And so there's like that give and take. There's that give and take with the horses where sometimes you let them run a bit, but then you pull them back a bit. And so, you know, it's an art of how to control a horse. And so since this is the ancient analogy, the horses are the senses, the chariot is the body, the reins are the mind, the chariot driver is the intelligence, and so on, the soul is the passenger. So in trying to control our bodies, the extent to which you think it's desirable to have control over your own body as opposed to just being uh, forced to do things because your body is, you know, has these compulsive desires that are beyond your control. So the extent that you think it's desirable to have control over your own physical body, uh, let's say because you practice yoga, because you have some other spiritual goals in life, or just because you think that's a rational way to live, then it's a question of, so that give and take, you can't just, it, it's like you're driving, say you're driving 80 miles an hour on a highway, you realize you're going the wrong direction. You can't just slam on the brakes because you'll flip your car. And so there's a process of gradually slowing down the car, making the turn and coming back. And so in the yoga system, it's acknowledged in all these spiritual paths. It's basically any, I think any spiritual path that's been around long enough to have practical experience knows you don't want to just, you can just lose control of yourself. If you impose upon yourself very heavy discipline, which is artificial. You can actually destabilize yourself emotionally and uh, even psychologically. 
On the other hand, there's self-indulgence. And so, generally, the yoga schools, they can, it's, it's very much comparable to going to a gym. If you have a good personal trainer and you want a good workout, if you do too much or too little, you won't get what you want. If your workout is too easy, you won't get anything out of it. And if it's too difficult, you can hurt yourself. And so if you think of the spiritual practice as a workout, like a physical workout, too much or too little is not good. But going back to, to Rajneesh or Osho, uh, there are disciplined practices where one is able to avoid extreme frustration or artificial self-abnegation and work through desires. But it doesn't come by simply telling you, it's like telling someone in a gym, yeah, just go and do whatever you want. No one else can tell you, you know, how much weight you should lift or how many repetitions you should do or, you know, you can literally break your neck in a gym. And so simply telling young people who are just kind of like, you know, hormones on wheels, you know, just telling young people, just do, you know, if it feels good, do it. No one else can tell you what morality is. If anyone tries to give you wisdom, that person's your enemy. Missing the obvious point that he just did that. Uh, and there is, you, you can see some, there were some of the results were actually horrendous. It led to the first, uh, the first attempt at bioterrorism in the United States. It led to the prostitution of women who went to India supposedly, supposedly seeking a spiritual path and ending up as you know, selling drugs and prostituting themselves. And so, uh, yeah, so, so there, there is a, I, I think, a way to practically engage your senses, engage your body in a way that you can work through desires. But it is a practice. It is a discipline. It's not just, it's not just anarchy. So, uh, oh my God, one minute over to how you admit it. So, have a great weekend.